Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? My week was better than last week in that I am slowly recovering from this flu. I still wake up quite congested in the mornings, but I'm not feeling as lousy. But all my long COVID symptoms that appeared April, May, the beginning of this year when I first started to really get symptomatic They're all have back. come back. Yeah, that creepy crawly feeling that I mentioned in our first few episodes had gone away for about three months, is now back. Hmm. Chest tightness, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, well. So it's basically <laughs> the virus has uh, taken you back to that first stage. It's it's like you now have an underlying condition in your body, which is kind of reignited every time your immune system gets low or you Get some kind of assault. Yeah, if, if your defences get low. Yeah. How are you? I am all right today. I had a really, I had a bad week. I, there were pretty much four days where I, I, I couldn't leave the house. I, I mean, I didn't mention, but I might have, I might have gone surfing when I was away. You did not mention that, Emily. I thought I was out for five minutes, but my husband tells me that was actually out for nearly two hours, and turns out that plus travel plus energy expenditure my body can't do it and it really really told me so I'm not trying to incrementally increase what I'm doing but every so often I think I feel good I'm going to try this um and sometimes I land on my ass and sometimes I'm fine that that I still feel like I need to work out where my level is for for what I can do I only ever judge a good day on, with the fact that my symptoms are less than they were when they're bad so if a little bit of palpitations or a little bit of tachycardia for me is a good day. But that's not normal. So I don't ever feel normal. Do you understand no. what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely understand what you mean. I just feel that my I've set my levels differently. And changed your expectations. I never wake up in the morning and think, oh, I feel this nothing hurts. No, I normally wake up in the morning and think, I honestly don't know how I'm going to get through the day I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed I'm so tired but anyway anyway this week so this week we really wanted to be on top of what's happening in the long covid arena and there's been lots and lots of social media tweets and facebook groups talking um, about microclots about the treatment that Dr Assad Khan is having in Germany with Dr Beata Jäger before we look at potential treatments that everyone is talking about. Um, we really wanted to drill down on the science of them finding the microclots and what the potential impact is on our bodies before we start looking into potential treatments in any detail. So Professor Risha Pretorius's work from South Africa she and her team are the ones who found the microclots with regard to long COVID patients. But I want to stress that it was a very small clinical group. And so the findings are still very, very early. And in order to understand how these microclots interact with our bodies, you know, we thought it best to talk to her. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being involved heavily in the research and, and your study of long COVID? Over the past year, since probably 2004, around about, I think, I started looking at blood samples and blood clotting. So I've been studying blood clotting, red blood cells, platelets, coagulation dilemmas uh, for a very long time. And when acute COVID came along and uh, I spoke to some of my clinical collaborators, we actually thought that it seems right in the beginning, early 2020, 
already. We thought that it might be indeed rather just than being a uh, respiratory disease affecting the lungs also be a condition that affects the vasculature and uh, clotting. And then luckily we had quite a fast process in our university looking at ethics and we could get a study going uh, very early in 2020 uh, looking at at acute COVID. And then obviously as the, the, the waves progressed and into late to uh, 2020, we started beginning to hear the word long COVID. And uh, very early on, the uh, Long COVID Alliance from the USA uh, started um, the collecting a, a lot of information and also collaborators. And very early in 2021, uh, the Stellenbosch University was also joined onto as one of the collaborators in the uh, Long COVID Alliance. So definitely Long COVID is, is, as we know, a very new condition, but it became very clear, I think, end 2020, that people are struggling and they're not uh, getting better. And you then set up a study yourself at the university gathering data. Was the sample set from whom you were gathering data was that South African focused or was that global the patient samples came from South Africa and particularly uh, mini clinic in Stellenbosch where I have got a few clinical collaborators so we gathered data first of all just samples blood samples from people that were just diagnosed naive treatment um, so they didn't have any treatment yet we gathered blood samples from those individuals, and that was now last year. And then earlier this year in May, we then uh, realized that there is a need for looking into long COVID, all the symptoms and all the comorbidities. And linking that to the Long COVID Alliance, we thought, well, we saw that in the Long COVID Alliance in the USA, they were gathering data from economic status and symptoms and, and all sorts of um, uh, data related to the patient. And um, it was very clear that state there is nothing that, nothing like that in South Africa or in Africa. And then we decided to actually start a long COVID registry, a South African long COVID registry, where patients could also log their data. And that is still going. So we have got that. And then we're also looking at blood samples from patients. And in terms of gathering that data, have you started to see any patterns? Because a lot of the people we've spoken to so far have been quite UK or quite Europe focused. And we are quite interested to know about the impact in other countries in terms of climates, demographics, because we are very interested to know what is influencing those that are contracting long COVID. The initial analysis that we have been doing on from the data that we gathered from the long COVID uh, registry is uh, it seems as if people with previous comorbidities, in particularly high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol levels, as well as diabetes, are the individuals that seem to struggle the most to uh, get over the persistent symptoms that we are now linking to uh, long COVID. Can I, can I just ask, because I'm Kenyan, but I'm an Asian Kenyan, uh, the access to medical care in South Africa is obviously dependent on you know, your finances. Are your patients mostly Caucasian? Uh, it's a mixture. So the people that I'm, the clinicians I'm working with are clinicians from private practice. So they're at uh, Mediclinic Stellenbosch, which is a big pri private hospital group. Their patient population are are mixed. We, we get all all the, the different populations. So, however, I must say they will be from the higher economic status because they will be able to pay medical yeah. aid. However, the long COVID registry where people fill in on the, the 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 data on their data on the long COVID registry is in fact the whole spectrum from individuals without any medical aid right through to the ones that can afford it. So we have recently also, except for 
just noting what's happening in the population using the registry data that the people fill in. We also randomly chose a hundred of these individuals that already uh, put in the information and who said we may allow to contact them. And we uh, just randomly collected blood samples and they cover the whole spectrum uh, from the different economic uh, backgrounds, but also race. Are you seeing any prevalence in any particular demographic? Because here it seems that it's a large proportion of the people seeking medical help for long COVID seem to be white, which is um, different to those who were more affected in the acute phase of the virus. And we're interested to try and establish if that's to do with the access to medical care. I cannot really say that because we have been seeing people from from the black community, white community, and coloured community. So, from from what we see, I cannot really say that. But uh, obviously, uh, it's not just my perception. Um, for that, we need to have numbers, you know, to, to large numbers, and, and and look at that. But that we that we don't have currently. And the symptoms that we are, are noting. The, the most important ones that we have been seeing throughout the individuals are symptoms like to, to be out of breath. They've got pain on in, on, in their lungs, um, sudden chest pain, uh, lots of people complaining about concentration and many people denoting it with the term of brain fog. And that's what we have been also been uh, seeing from data from the rest of, of the world, that those are some of the main complaints. Then there are complaints that we cannot really say why it is happening. Things like hair loss um, is something that's quite common. But then the other symptoms that they also complain about are symptoms related to all of the, the main organ systems. Complaints of kidneys, liver, pains in the muscle, uh, really a a very debilitating set of uh, symptoms that have been noted. But the main ones, we believe, can be traced back to uh, a a dysfunctional clotting system, which may uh, result in in these type of symptoms. So particularly the, the shortness of breath. The, the sudden pains in their lungs and, and in the chest area, heart palpitations. Those are the things that we're seeing and we do believe it's linked to clotting, but that's also what the rest of, of the world are noting. You and your team at the moment have become quite famous amongst the long COVID community because of your work in microclotting. Could you just explain to people who don't know that much about it, what is microclotting? Okay, so for me to do that, let's let us start right at acute COVID. When you've got acute yeah. COVID, and even before that, when you've got conditions like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, all sorts of inflammatory conditions. So it is well known that any individual with an inflammatory condition like cardiovascular disease or diabetes have got a hypercoagulable state. So what does that mean? It means that you are more prone because of inflammatory molecules in circulation to clot easier than other individuals, healthy individuals. So, for example, if you look at someone with diabetes, because of the glucose levels that are dysregulated, Glucose is an inflammatory molecule that's upregulated, therefore, in circulation that will cause all sorts of uh, issues with your endothelial, the inside of your blood vessels, platelet hyperactivation, and then clotting. So that is well known in those populations. So if we go into acute COVID, if you already have got a predisposition for some of these inflammatory conditions, you will already have a hypercoagulable state. Now you develop acute COVID, then with the extra load of the virus, with the extra load of the inflammatory molecules that the viral molecules produce in your body, you are then even more prone to clotting. But saying that, we have also seen that in presumably healthy individuals, meaning people that train, uh, athletes, No no previous uh, record of them having cardiovascular disease or inflammatory disease. They will also have, during acute COVID, clotting dysregulation. 
I've probably, with my clinical collaborators, looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of samples from acute COVID when the patient is in the hospital. And every single one will have increased clotting propensity and platelets, hyperactivation of platelets are small round cellular entities that are involved in clotting. So the platelets are hyperactivated and the clotting uh, profiles are dysregulated in every single acute COVID. Now, it seems to us that the individuals that go on to have persistent symptoms for long COVID, they don't have acute COVID, they're not infective, but they have these persistent long COVID symptoms. All of the patients that we have looked at had increased clot formation and platelet hyperactivation. So returning to your question, what is microclots? So microclots are small little insoluble clots in circulation that is produced due to the fact that inflammatory molecules, the spike protein or any other inflammagen which cause, which is not supposed to be in blood, which, which cause the blood to become sticky or hypercoagulable, binds to the clotting proteins, causing insoluble little microclots. Now, if we look at a healthy individual, a healthy individual has got plasma proteins in circulation. They are supposed to be soluble. So the main one is fibrinogen, a soluble clotting protein. However, when microclots form, the soluble clotting protein becomes insoluble because of these inflammagens or inflammatory molecules binding to it and, and causing the clot to become a little microclot that is in circulation that is not soluble anymore, but insoluble little particles. And that is uh, one of the main things that we have diagnosed long COVID patients with is, is these microclots in circulation, platelet hyperactivation. And and what do those microclots do in the blood? Because it's not the same, is it, as when you say they found a blood clot on someone's lung. It's not quite the same as having a, a what's described as a blood clot, a microclot. They still move around or do they stay? So, so the microclots uh, are in circulation. However, when the clot goes and sits in a big vessel or in the lungs, it can be one or two or more of these microclots that go and trap or uh, are uh, caught in the finer capillaries in the lungs. So, so they are in circulation, but they can also be trapped in a specific area. And that is what we think what is happening when individuals complain of brain fog, organ um, uh, symptoms. We think that it's nothing else but these microclots going and uh, occluding the small, small little vessels. That's our hypothesis. So that's interesting because when you say insoluble, we spoke to... Um, a chap last week called Robin McNellis who said he had a blood clot in his lung and although he was on blood thinners it didn't fibrose or go away after four or five months it went subsequently went away it has gone now hasn't it but it has it gone now a, it didn't it almost didn't react at all in those first four or five months could it be one of those microclots that you think that kind of clumped together and caused this is that the sort of thing that we're looking at Absolutely. And if I just tell you about our experience in the laboratory, we could actually see that is what is happening in his, in his body. So what we did is we took blood samples from individuals with long COVID and also acute COVID controls and those with diabetes. And we luckily we have got a store of blood before COVID. So we had diabetes and controls that we knew were not exposed to, to COVID at all. And we wanted to see what is the protein content inside the, the blood samples, the plasma samples. And for that, we wanted to do uh, quite a uh, state-of-the-art technique that's called proteomics, where you look at the protein content of a sample. And for that, we needed to digest the sample fully. So the microclots, we wanted to digest them because otherwise they can also get trapped in, in the mass spec, this is the machine that you do the proteomics on. But to our surprise, we, we put in a first step 
of trypsinization. So trypsin is a well-known enzyme that are supposed to break up all sorts of little pieces of protein. That is what's standardly used in, in, in a proteomics analysis. And to our surprise, we couldn't break up these microclots with a first digestion step. We could break it up in the uh, all plasma. It was all digested in the controls and diabetes, but in the acute COVIDs and the long COVIDs, we could not. And we actually, in the in a, our recent paper that we published in uh, cardiovascular diabetology, we actually show the the first after the first trypsinization step microclots that actually look ex- exactly the same as before the treatment. Then we had another step of trypsinization and. Um, at last, we could break it up. So with this now um, in mind, perhaps one could think that if such a microclot is trapped inside a human's lung, it will also struggle to, to be digested or broken up by, uh, by some uh, medications. So you have found a possible treatment with the second step. Uh, no, not a treatment. The, the second trypsinization step is a laboratory treatment. Right. But we have found, so there are two possible methodologies to treat these individuals. The first is a, a regime of anticoagulation. Now, that has not been widely accepted by clinicians because one of the first things they say is the, in the, the patients will go into bleeding. Um, so clinicians are wary of this. However, our clinicians, in uh, that our co-workers, have been treating long COVID patients uh, very well with, with anticoagulation, but obviously under very, very fine clinical care. Um, so the, the, there's, a, there's a way to treat them using anticoagulants, but there's also a way to mechanically remove the clot. And we're on our way now to Mulheim in Germany, to Dr. Beate Jaeger, is a method to actually remove the clots with a machine that we call help apheresis. So that is a, that is a machine that filters your blood and it filters out the microclots. And Dr. Beate Jaeger has seen wonderful results with, with the help apheresis machine, filtering it out, and we're on our way to actually study blood samples before and after and see uh, with our methods if the clots are indeed removed. Now, I know that your initial study that you published the paper in August was 20 or so samples? Yeah, it wasn't just a preliminary study. It was, And you're going on to do a larger sample set. Yes. Are you saying that every single one of the samples that had long COVID had the microclots? Yes, the ones that we have uh, looked at and identified via our uh, clinical collaborators, every single one that went through his practice to be identified as a long COVID, clinically identified, had the microclots. So, So obviously, one must be aware that someone doesn't say he's got long COVID and it must be a clinically validated uh, individual, meaning that the clinician must have gone through a set of specific questions. They must, uh, you know, also you must find out that the symptoms were not present before the person had acute COVID. It must be new symptoms and uh, then it must be a proper clinical investigation of the patient. So it it cannot just be, you know, the patient must indeed be suffering from long COVID. And everyone that we have been looking at have uh, have had these microclots. Does that mean that this subject to further study could actually potentially create a diagnosis test for long COVID? Because at the moment, it is still sort of clinical diagnosis. It's anecdotal. It's based on, on the history. And people are looking for a test that can determine, yes, this person has long COVID as opposed to, to something else. That's the dilemma of all of the patients. They go to clinicians and there is no diagnosis that can diagnose them. But the answer for that is very simple. If you have got a normal pathology test that you would do in in a patient, the pathology test would do certain coagulation tests or so on the soluble part, the fluid part of the, the plasma. So if you do an analysis on the fluid part of the plasma, 
you will not find these microclots and you will not find the inflammatory molecules that can indicate that there is a problem. The reason simply being is what we found, all these inflammatory molecules are trapped in the microclots, which are uh, insoluble parts of the, the plasma. So if you do a, a normal pathology test, uh, it's not going to show up because you, you, you're missing the fraction of the plasma where the molecules are situated. Because you're not getting inside that. Exactly. What's the name of the test that determines this? So if I wanted to go to my doctor and say, you need to give me this test, I would say... You won't say anything currently because it's still in the body. <laughs> That's the problem. So the only way to look at the microclots is very simple, actually. Uh, it's, it's a question of you draw a blood sample, you spin down platelet-poor plasma, you add a fluorescent marker to it, and the one that we use is theoflavin T, which is a very cheap, very easily accessible marker of, of, dis, of dysfunctional, disfold, misfolded proteins. You expose that to the, the, the sample. 30 minutes later, you make a smear and you look under a fluorescent microscope. So that's the dilemma. The fluorescent microscope is a laboratory uh, um, microscope, so research-based. So it's not as if it's in any pathology, regular pathology laboratories. That's that's the important dilemma. Another right. easy test also is to find the hyperactivated platelets, where we also use two markers for platelet activation. There are many, many more that you can use. We expose the hematocrit, which is the, the red blood cell and platelet portion of the sample after you have spun down and removed the, pl the plasma we expose that to uh, platelet markers and then we look at the, that smear under a fluorescent microscope so this method is not it's a very simple research method but it's not a, a, a used methodology in a pathology lab mm. one of our concerns is that people hear about you doing um, this study and rather than waiting for further studies and, and things to be approved, they decide to go and try and get themselves onto self-prescribed anticoagulants. Do you think that's a big risk in, in terms of those that are suffering with long COVID? Because Noreen and I both have long COVID. I've had it for nearly 20 months and it's it's hard. You get to the point where you're kind of prepared to try a lot of different things. Would it be detrimental if people self-prescribed anticoagulants? Absolutely, because the issue with that is the which ones do you use? Uh, that's the question. Now, what we have been finding with our cl clinical collaborators is they are. You need to have a multi-pronged approach. You need to to um, block the clotting pathway, the enzymatic pathway, but you also need to block the platelet hyperactivation. So you need to block the coagulation process at two areas to calm down your coagulation system, to give your endothelial cells, your lining of your blood vessels, a rest. So, so you have to calm down your endothelial layers so that the platelets that are hyperactivated, do not go and attach to the damaged areas that is in your endothelial layers. And also, secondarily, you want the microclots not to form and to break up. So because those microclots can also bind to the endothelial receptors. So it is, should be a multi-pronged approach. So not one or the other uh, can work. You, and therefore, you need to have clinicians that are open-minded and understand the clotting process fully. Otherwise, you cannot just say drink, drink disparate or drink this or that. It's not going to work. You have to have a, a multi-pronged approach to calm down platelets and microclots. And who, who deals with that multi-pronged approach in terms of what speciality? Because a lot of people here are being sent off to a cardiologist or a neurologist. Or Who, who do people need to ask to see? Well, I think the, in South Africa, it's a vascular specialist uh, in internal medicine um, speciality with vascular uh, 
background. So, uh, and definitely some of those individuals with that background also are very scared to use uh, such a such a multi-pronged approach, simply for the reason that they're scared of bleeding, and that is a real issue. So you need to watch the patient very well. But we hope that with a help apheresis system, which you will can filter out the, the clotlets from your circulation, perhaps that would be a more appropriate method to convince clinicians to use such a technique because it, it, it obviously takes away the concern that many might have that there might be bleeding tendencies. But um, we haven't really seen it with, with the treatment that our clinicians give. We haven't seen massive bleeding issues at all. So here's the real question. If the microclotting is causing the long COVID, is this an ongoing process? And so then do you have to do this blood cleanse Repeatedly. more than once? Or will getting rid of the microclots fix you? We are in the process of preparing a paper as we speak now. We hope to have the paper ready within a, the week uh, of an example of about 20 patients that our clinical collaborators treated with um, anticoagulants and antiplatelets bef before and then after. And they, we hope to, to clarify that. It seems to us that if the patients are treated for between four and six weeks, this then, is on the anticoagulants rather than on yeah. the filtration. Yes, then then we see that that they they do not have uh, the issue anymore. They, they you know they don't complain. They they okay then after um, long COVID. What we have also found, which is quite interesting to us, our clinician collaborator who treats his acute COVID patients with a set of anticoagulants. Not one of his patients that he treated actually landed up with long COVID. He's seeing all of the patients treated with other, by other means, uh, individuals coming now sitting with long COVID. And what he does is he puts his patients on a regime of anticoagulation after they recovered from acute COVID for at least four weeks or so after they've recovered and then they, they seem to be fine. There might be other, other issues as well that, that anticoagulation and apheresis might not address. Perhaps something like some of the more persistent uh, complaints, brain uh, issues, brain fog and concentrations. Perhaps there's some, and, and you know, more the psychological side of it um, could, cannot obviously in some cases be addressed by treating microclots. So it must be, um, you know, looking at the patients very uh, in detail, I think the clinical um, workup of each individual patient and, and to see what are the other issues that, that is now also prevailing. I think that's very important. So this treatment is should be part of a wider range of treatments that we get? I think so. I think there's a place for various treatment options in these patients. Yeah. But the, what we, uh, so we're just focusing and, and our laboratory is focusing on the microclots and platelet hyperactivation. And obviously uh, that is what we are looking at. So if these patients suffer from these in circulation, it's not supposed to be there. So we think it's a place to start, get rid of the microclots, calm down the platelets, heal the endothelial layers and then from there, look at the other symptoms that's still persistent. And then perhaps another field of research or clinical field, neurology or so, can then also take over. Have you ever seen these microclots before in any other kind of virus or disease? You have made reference, haven't you, to similarities in ME, CFS, POT and MCAS in your study? So uh, there's a researcher, Amy Prowell that's very active in the MECFS environment. She's from Polybio and also from affiliate to Harvard. She's been uh, saying um, in one of her publications as well that uh, ME could have possibly have the same pathogenesis. We are, I, I haven't looked at ME patients myself. However, we're starting a study in January looking at these patients as well. Where microclots are, are indeed in circulation is in diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. We've seen that, however, not to the extent 
that we see in long COVID and acute COVID. So massively increased. We published a paper in 2020 already, also in cardiovascular diabetology, where we compared with the microclots um, also in diabetes patients' controls. And, and there already we saw it in acute COVID. Much more, uh, much larger in size. You know, there's significant differences in, in size in microclots in acute COVID and in long COVID as well. So do you think that there is a possibility that those of us that have long COVID could have a previously undiagnosed autoimmune condition or diabetes or one of these conditions in which you know that there is this clotting process? That might be because we see many of the individuals with long COVID do have these as comorbidities. However, we also think there might be a population, especially the people who are athletes who don't have a history of any of these conditions. There might be an underlying genetic reason for it, that your genetic predisposition was uh, just so that you might have a genetic predisposition for clotting and you're having a, you, you, you had a very... Uh, healthy lifestyle before your genes didn't come into play and then with this attack you know you you add epigenetic changes or just simply genetic predisposition that is a question that obviously we need to answer as well there's you know so much that we don't know well, this coronavirus is very unique in the way that it's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of inflamed everybody's ability to fight disease and it's it seems it seems to be quite prevalent to be honest and we're looking at what one in seven people who go on to develop long COVID. What are your figures in South Africa? Uh, we, we, we don't know but we think it's going to, it should be the same as the rest of the, the world uh, 25 to 35 percent we think um, will be that's what we're noting so I think it's, it will be the same. What is also very interesting uh, I don't know if you have seen that in other in, in your environment as well there are a lot of individuals that develop long COVID that actually initially was not that sick when they had acute COVID. Some of them yeah. were you know, really not sick at all. In, in some yeah, instances, I wasn't sick. Yeah. Some instances, people weren't even, you know, they were asymptomatic in some instances. That is a scary thing. Yeah, the the severity of the acute phase does not correlate with the severity of the long COVID at all, it seems. Not at all, yeah. And I'm just going to say again, it's your work that has highlighted this problem. That must be quite exciting, though, in terms of this new disease. <laughs> to be right at the forefront of something that could possibly help millions of people. Yes, it is exciting in the one end. And in the other end, we've been saying it's a vascular disease right from the start. Um, and, and a, a clotting disease. And there are a, a, a few clinicians that do still not actually believe that. So that is, it's, it's interesting to watch how the research are coming out. And uh, where in, initially it was said, no, it's a typical respiratory disease, that's it. And more and more publications coming out saying and showing that it is endothelial related. It is platelets. It is clots. So, so yes, it is exciting, but um, uh, a long road for us from from right in the beginning. So, would you actually dispute that it is a respiratory disease at all? Oh no, 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 no! Absolutely, I will not dispute at all that it's a. It is definitely, most definitely, a respiratory disease that we know. But the it, it is a respiratory disease with strong vascular and. Uh, clotting propensities, so and endothelitis, and that's that's what it's not only we that say that. Many many people have have said that. So definitely, it is a respiratory. We know that it's a respiratory disease with people becoming very very sick, their lungs severely affected. But if we look, there are many many reports where um, autopsy data have shown severe microclotting in, in, in individuals that passed away from acute COVID inside the lungs. Inside the lungs, yeah. Okay. Some of this um, cleansing of the blood in Germany has been going on. P patients have been going through this process. Have you heard from your colleagues what the outcomes have been? We, yes, we have. And uh, there are a few individuals that 
did the, the help apheresis with Dr. Jaeger that we are working with, who are clinicians themselves and who are uh, much, much better. And I don't know if you saw the BBC interview with her and Dr. Assad yeah. Khan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and they, they, she also mentioned um, an individual that actually came in a wheelchair and walked out fine. Um, so we would what we want to see how long it takes. You know, is is it a once off? Probably not. Um, some individuals need much more than one session. Yeah, that goes back to Noreen's question previously. If this is potentially a treatment, is it likely that it we're going to have to keep going? back for that filtration? I hope not, because it seems if um, Dr. Jaeger is also looking into giving a short session of anticoagulants to some of her patients, I'll find out to, you know, which types she's, she's giving and it will be included in our paper that we're going to do when we uh, gather the data when we visit her. Mm. So that is an open question. So I'm not sure about... If, if, if we had to repeat the, the apheresis long term, but I think I would think not. I think if you would, if you're able to remove the the clots um, that are causing the dilemma and and just heal your endothelial layer, so that that is not so inflamed with endothelitis and gives that a rest, you have a chance of your body resetting. You're not going to keep producing the clots if you unless you unless you contract COVID again. Exactly. How long ago did they start the the trials of the treatment? So it's not trials, it's just simply treatment that she does okay. with her patients. I think she said she started at the beginning of this year. She started using help apheresis for long COVID patients. And I, she's treated 104, um, as she mentioned in the BBC interview. I'm not sure it might be more now. Um, and we're going to look at 20 uh, when we visit her next week, we're going to have um, 20 patients that come as her regular patients and we're going to draw blood before um, and then they're going to have the treatment and then afterwards as well. And uh, we've got a microscope there, fluorescent microscope, so we will be able to check out and see uh, see how the blood looks before the time and then after, and see if the clots are indeed removed in circulation as well, not only in the actual filter. We are interested in that as well, but we just did want to have this conversation with you first to find out the background of what you've told us today rather than going straight in with the treatment option. Because I think the identification of the microclots, the mechanism of it, we need to give that its due weight before we start looking at, at treatments. Absolutely. And the thing is, you first need to find out if it's if it's there, um, because it doesn't help you treat someone and then, you, you know, it, there is nothing to remove. Yeah, you don't want to start people on that treatment. So the important thing now is that pathology laboratories get a diagnostic method based on identification of microclots. That is that is as simple as that. And is it something that could potentially be be rolled out globally? Because the way that you explain it, it makes it sound, it's not something that I have here, but it makes it sound relatively simple in terms of what people need in, in lab terms. Yes, the, the most expensive thing, yeah, the most expensive thing is a microscope, a fluorescent microscope. Uh, so that's in our terms in South African rand, it's around about um, 1.5 million rand and it's 1 to 14 to the pound or so, I'm not sure. Um, so it's not it's not a, a hugely expensive piece of equipment, but obviously it is a expense. But then if you've got a fluorescent microscope, the rest is very, very easy and very fast. A lot of symptom exacerbation in long COVID is caused by physical exertion specifically for me I can do certain things if I go for a run it's it's way too much the movement of microclots around the the body is there a sort of direct correlation between increasing your heart rate in terms of exercise and then the effect on the microclots and therefore symptom exacerbation 
if there are microclots in circulation, you would and you um, exercise. During exercise, your body would need more oxygen. And if there are microclots in circulation, it might prevent the oxygenation of your organs in the same way as an, in a healthy individual. So um, I think the oxygen carrying capacity of your blood is might be impaired as well. And um, simply because the microclots prevent the, the blood to flow as it should in, in a healthy individual. But what we do also see from these microclots are that they're not a typical microclot. Uh, the, the structure, it seems to be more like a sponge, if you look under the microscope, than you would find in a person with a stroke, a thrombotic stroke, who has got microclots in circulation that cause the, 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 the thrombotic stroke. You would find that the clot structure looks a little bit different. It looks like a, a spongy clot where we think it, they, it can squeeze through capillaries. So many people have asked me, so why don't every single one with long COVID die of a heart attack or a stroke? Because these, these molecules or these microclots may occlude the system. And simply also, we don't know. But it seems if it's treated, uh, as I say, we're preparing a paper uh, on that, and the microclots go away, um, and the platelet hyperactivation is calmed down, the symptoms disappear. So uh, that, that is what we have found. And with Dr. Yeager's treatment as well, if she removes the clots, the patients become better. So uh, there's the lots that we don't understand, but I think just first of all, determining that there are microclots in circulation is a, a first thing to, to look into further. So I'm going to ask you one, one more question. Take us right back again to, to what you said earlier. The word insoluble sounds quite scary. So these microclots, once you form them, are they with you for life? No, I don't think, well... Without treatment? Without treatment? Yeah. Obviously, if there are people that develop long COVID and then with time get better... And then there's a group of people that don't get better. But there are two possible scenarios. So the group that does get better, their endothelial layer might simply heal because of the fact that they eat better or they don't, you know, there's something that their bodies are more prone to heal faster. And then these microclots will eventually be removed by your normal fibrinolytic system, which is supposed to work well in a healthy individual. Then there are a group of researchers that do believe that the virus can become persistent. Now, there's a research group from Yale that actually have found the virus particles inside the lining of the gut. Now, if that is the case, then we could just imagine that those persistent viral entities will shed the spike protein or the other inflammatory molecules on a regular basis. And therefore, those individuals with long COVID, a percentage of them with persistence, will have the causing agents in circulation, dumped in circulation all the time. But we simply don't know the answer. <laughs> Is it persistence? Some clinicians say, well, no, perhaps not. Perhaps it's just simply that the uh, microclots are in circulation due to the damage of the endothelial layer that produces these molecules, the, the endothelial molecules the whole time from the damaged cells to drive the microclot formation. And then they stay in circulation for a period of time causing the dilemma. But in that scenario, you would expect that over time, the individual would indeed get better because of the healing of the endothelial layers uh, and the fibrinolytic system of the body that is supposed to get rid of these, these microclots. So I think in acute COVID, the exact same process happened. But in those individuals who recover fully, their fibrinolytic system is intact Perhaps the endothelial layer was very well preserved before they developed COVID and 
in some individuals not. We simply don't know the answer. It's just such a, a new and new territory and, and difficult disease to, to treat. Yeah, it's fascinating. A novel virus with new types of microclotting. <laughs> I'm off to take a handful of aspirin. <laughs> From that interview, I was fascinated by it and I can absolutely see how that mechanism might trigger so many of our symptoms. And, you know, there are there are links, but I think there is a danger that we are also desperate to have something, to have something yes. concrete. Uh, you know, and we have to wait and see what the what the evidence is. But, you know, great that people are and researchers and scientists and professors and doctors are all looking into it. Amazing. But let's keep our heads. Yeah, we've, we've waited this long. We can wait a bit longer. We're not doubting the work or doubting the good intentions of some of these people, but let's just uh, maintain some calm and wait for further studies and wait for the results I, I just urge everyone to exercise caution emily and i've be, both been very mindful of trying to keep this podcast as journalistically sound as as we can so we've really yeah. just gone to the best doctors and exploring all of the various theories and thoughts and research behind it rather than we're certainly not advocating any one route we are just trying to present the facts in that journalistic way join us next week as we hear others experiences of long covid share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net follow us on twitter and instagram for the latest updates and if you found this interesting, please do subscribe. <laughs>